yeah. You know, some people show up with the attitude and minds, you know, mindset that allow them to be really impactful. They kind of don't wait for an invitation to make a point. They find a way to make their point. And and so I decided, you know, this needs to be explored. And lots of people have been looking at what does great leadership look like and what's leadership sort of in this era of time look like. But what does contributorship look like? And what do contributors who are Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Liz Wiseman. Liz, thanks for doing this. Oh, good to be here. So you've done a few interesting things in your life. I certainly heard, heard about you years ago from the author side of things, but what are some of the most what are the some some of the most fun things you get to do in addition to writing books? Ooh, well, let me think. In some ways I don't know that I do anything interesting other than write books. So let me think about this. I I'm the mom of four kids, so I am deeply experienced in being unpopular. And I tell my kids, I'm like, you know, it's a good thing your mom was popular in high school because I still remember that, which allows me to be okay when I'm really unpopular with you as a teenager. Like, you know, my kids are always hearing from me. I'm not trying to win a popularity contest here. Anyway, being a mom is great. I get to be a grandma in uh, come January. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. And I like teenagers. And for the last seven years, I've taught an early morning Bible study class, a scripture study class to teenagers, which if having kids is not humbling enough, teaching teenagers at 630 in the morning is really humbling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because <laughs> they don't care about your books or what you do. But I've been doing that for seven years and tons of fun. Mostly it's the kind of fun that comes from learning how to make something relevant. Anyway, and I travel a lot I, and I love to travel. Like I'm, I've got a big old case of wanderlust, travel all around the world and love being in places that other people hate going. Really? Tell, yeah. Give, give me an example. Like things that are like a little bit scary, a little bit uncomfortable. I don't find them scary or uncomfortable, but like places where you might feel like, uh, like messy, chaotic places. India is my favorite place to go. And just like, I like going into places where I don't know what's going on. And like, I can't really make sense of what's happening around me because that sense making that comes when you travel in places with, you know, chaotic cultures relative to where I've grown up is interesting. Yeah. Or like, you know, backpacking in cold places and like... (laughs) High elevation, you know, ba- I, I like kind of backcountry stuff. Interesting. I am I am a big fan of the, of the backcountry world, as our listeners have heard about some of my stories. When you when you think about what you've done since your days at Oracle, what do you feel like? What do you feel like you had as far as advantages of coming out of? Was it like sixteen years at Oracle? How long were you at Oracle? I was there seventeen years? What do you feel like? How do you feel like that gave you an advantage to this, you know, speaking at giant conferences around the world, writing best-selling books, advising these top leaders? What do you feel like you got from that time? Oh, you know, I think I got 
so many things. So first of all, 17 years with Oracle, we used to talk about dog years. So like, you know, one year experience there was like five years of experience elsewhere because it was this rapid high growth organization. So I got thrown into management when I was very young and I had in some ways this privilege of being underqualified for every job I ever had. And, you know, I actually left Oracle not because I didn't like my job. I left because my job had become reasonable and I had never had a job that I was qualified for. Every one of them was like not a little stretch, like a big stretch. And so I had this um, like so many years of experience packed in. Like I was like, oh, I'm kind of one of these like low year, high mile cars. Like it's been around a long time. And you know how people say, oh, you know, like I'm, I'm 57 years old now. And people say, oh, like I still feel 22. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I feel 80. I feel like 87 <laughs> years old because I feel like I've bought a lot of miles on um, the car during that time. And then I think I, I got the advantage of like a little bit of fearlessness that comes from having been thrown into the deep end and figuring out how to swim and being entrusted with big jobs when I didn't know what I was doing. And so I think I learned like that. I I came out of it thinking it was normal. Like it's normal to not know what you're doing. And yeah, so I think it was like a little bit of a, a fearlessness. And I think I came out with a hunger for you know, I don't want to do something I know how to do. Like, give me something that I don't know how to do. Like, that's just in the realm of doable. Like something like I and I actually think magic happens when you work in this space. It's like this liminal space where you have just enough capability to start a project, but not enough to finish it. Which means like you've got to you've got to step up. You've got to grow <laughs> while you're doing it. Like, like, oh, no, there's no way I'm going to be successful based on what I can do right now. You know, I think that my my generation hears a lot more stories of the early days of Google or the early days of Facebook or things like that. But I don't I think there's a lot of younger people that don't realize what a force to be reckoned with Oracle was like. I know Oracle's a huge organization. You probably don't know this person. But one of my favorite people I've had on the show this year is a woman who overlapped with you there. She was there 85 to 95. Do you know uh, Nusheen Hashemi? Well, of chance. course I know Nusheen. Yeah, of course. She's so great. And like She's amazing. I, like, I learned all these things about Oracle in the early days and just like I could see what a trajectory it was for her coming out of that environment that you guys were in. Oracle, uh, Nusheen is amazing. And she was there when I joined. She's kind of legend there. Oracle was very much a talent factory. And there's a book written by, it's called Super Bosses. And it's out of Dartmouth, uh, Professor, and I'm... It'll come to me in just a moment, but super bosses and Oracle was one of the examples of it was a talent factory. And what they did is they hired for these like three qualities, which was raw intelligence, hyper drive and nice. And I can tell you definitely from experience that when they compromised on one of the um, angles in the triangle, it was nice. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> but, oh, really? With Larry Ellison at the top? Shocker. I know, like, and the people were like wicked smart and amazing. And, and then they threw people in. I just felt lucky to work there. I'm like, man, I can't believe I get to work with all these really amazingly smart, talented people. And then they threw them into these big jobs. And mostly that worked out a couple of times. I got the company into trouble and it became this talent factory. 
And, and I think because it was a little bit of a rough environment, like you were expected to figure things out and it became the talent factory that populated so much of Silicon Valley. Uh, Like Mark Benioff grew up with us, like, you know, Mark and I grew up in the same neighborhood, so to speak at Oracle. And we've seen, we've seen all these alumni go out and start companies and so much of like what maybe that next generation is seeing of like kind of the, the major players in tech like we'll trace it its roots back to people who started at Oracle. Yeah, I feel like the business press has been in love with the PayPal mafia and like mm. Peter Thiel and Elon Musk are great and the guys started YouTube and whatever. But I feel like there's like there is an Oracle mafia that people that isn't quite as well advertised. Well, maybe it's so much of a mafia that it isn't well advertised. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and and Larry, you know, I wrote this book about multiplier leaders and diminisher leaders and sometimes people be like, "Oh, was Larry Ellison one of these diminishers?" Well, maybe if you didn't know him, but if Larry trusted you, there was no greater multiplier. Like mm. I was given Tell me about ir- that. Well, I was given irresponsible levels of responsibility. And I knew it at the time. I'm like 24 years old and I'm about a year and a half, no more than two years into my career. I've, you know, graduated from college. I went to grad school, did a couple internships. I have like no work experience to speak of other than about a year and a half at Oracle. And they're like, hey, we want you to, you know, manage this training group and go build Oracle University. I'm like, are there no adults around here? Like, are we lacking for supervision? Because this seems like a grown-up job. Like, <laughs> I mean, I had this image of like the kind of person who ran a corporate university and they definitely had, I mean, they probably look a lot like what I look like now, you know? And I'm like, I'm a kid. Like my only real qualification is that I've recently been at a university. And so maybe <laughs> <laughs> I remember what happened like in that world of education, but um and, and it was that kind of thing, like if you felt trusted, like you were given this like challenging things to do, hard things, like if you weren't trusted, it was a little bit painful. Interesting. You know, you, you're such a well-recognized author. When did Multipliers come out, by the way? 2010, in, it was the first, June of 2010. And then in 2017, I wrote a second edition to it. So I added two okay. chapters, you know, I kind of bulked it up. It got a little bit fat. And, and with the new book, with Impact Players, I've got a bunch of questions about it. I've only just started it, and I'm liking it already. But what what was kind of the spark, or why did you decide this book needed to be written? Well, the, probably the spark, like the decision whether to write a book for me is a slow process. And it's kind of like my, my attitude around art, or like buying anything I don't really need. And, you know, it's like, if I like something and I come home and forget about it, I, you know, like, no, I'm glad I didn't buy that. But if I keep thinking about it, like every day for two weeks, like pay attention to this thing, like maybe that piece of art needs to be on my wall or something. But it's when I can't let go of questions, like mm-hmm. this is something that needs to be researched. But if there's a, like a moment of spark, it was up at Salesforce and I'm teaching a workshop on multiplier leadership, which the concept's pretty simple. It's using your own intelligence and knowledge as a way to provoke knowledge and intelligence in others that some people are really smart, but they have a diminishing effect on their team. Like they're smart, but no one around them gets to be smart. And people hold back around these kind of leaders. They waste intelligence and they're really a bummer to work for. Uh, Versus a multiplier leader who, you know, ask good questions and get other people thinking and they see genius in others. And so people are at their smartest and most capable around these kind of leaders. They build really 
highly intelligent teams and what I, in my kind of nerd vocabulary, would call a high contribution team. Like that's not a sticky term for anyone but me, I think. But it's like, how do you create an environment where people are contributing at their fullest? Because it's what we want out of work. Like this is the thing I've learned studying leadership is that nobody comes to work looking for an easy gig. Like people all around the world, they come to work wanting and in many ways desperately wanting to contribute everything they have. Because I have asked hundreds of thousands of people like what it's like to work for someone who's not using all of your capability. Well, it's frustrating. It's draining. It's exhausting. It's like soul sucking. What's it like to work for someone who is using everything you have and challenging you and asking you to do hard things? Well, okay. Truth be told, that's a little bit tiring, but totally exhilarating. And like people want that. And, and so I've been out there teaching all these people how to be like multiplier leaders, blah, blah. And I'm kind of like pouring my heart out doing this workshop at, at Salesforce. And one of the engineering managers, he's like, he's like, yeah, I get it. Like, I want to be a multiplier leader, but you can't multiply zero. Like what? What's that all about? And what he was, I thought he was meant like, I'm not working with good raw talent. Like I got a bunch of dummies working for me and I'm about to go into my like, Hey, everyone's brilliant. Not everyone is like a true genius, but everyone has genius and your job as a leader is to see and use the genius on blah, blah, blah. And he's then starts to explain what he means. He's like, well, I have to bring the right mindsets and attitudes, but so do the people who work for me. Like, like they have to show up in a way that allows them to contribute fully. And I'm like, oh yeah, there's definitely a contributor side to this. Like, you know, I had been putting kind of the energy around the leader and in some ways the blame on the leader if people weren't able to contribute fully. And then I realized, oh yeah, you know, some people show up with the attitude and minds, you know, mindset that allow them to be really impactful. They kind of don't wait for an invitation to make a point. They find a way to make their point. And, and so I decided, you know, this needs to be explored. And lots of people have been looking at what does great leadership look like and what's leadership sort of in this era of time look like, but what does contributorship look like? And what do contributors who are contributing fully and having a lot of influence and impact like what do they do differently than everyone else it's in some ways okay it's the, that's exactly, exactly the question that's exactly the question i want to talk about here with you can we run through some stories from the book like can you talk about the woman who became the co-host of armchair expert with dax oh monica padman oh my goodness so she comes out of so she is currently the co-host on armchair expert and it's a wonderful podcast it's how she got there that i think is so fascinating because she comes out of college She's got two degrees, one in theater, which is the degree she wanted, and the other in public relations, and that was for her parents. And she moves to Hollywood from Atlanta, I think, and she wants to be a comedian. She wants to be an actress. She wants to make it in Hollywood. And, you know, like a lot of aspiring actors and actresses, like working part-time jobs, the baristas and babysitters, and... She's working a bunch of part-time jobs trying to get parts, and she lands a couple small parts. And one of them is the on-screen assistant to Kristen Bell's character in House of Lies. Did I get okay. that right? Yeah. And so, With you know, they have, yeah, they, they have some interactions on set. And then, you know, she runs into 
Kristen like at something at a party and and she has a chance to talk with her and you know she mentions that she does babysitting and you know Kristen and Dak Shepard who you know her husband they have a couple young kids and they you know hire her as a babysitter and then she starts to get to know the family and here's what most people would do okay aspiring actress babysitting for two A-listers in Hollywood what would most people do ask hey, for a part ask for an in ask for ask for an introduction or a part, like help me get in. And what Monica sees is like, oh yeah, you know, Kristen's like overtaxed. She's got way too many things. Like, hey, can I help you with your scheduling? You know what? She's getting scripts piled up. Like, can can I sort through some of those scripts and help you figure out? And so she's just making herself useful and valuable and they want her to now babysit full time. And that's a quandary because she's like, well, wait a minute. I'm not going to have time to go. Like babysitting is like my side hustle <laughs> so I can get my real thing going. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm not going to be able to go like audition I've got two for parts. <laughs> I, yeah, two degrees. I can't show up for an audition like with your kids in tow and their security detail or whatever goes into all that. But she says, okay, this could be a detour, but I'm going to do it. And, you know, and then she's very involved in the things of the household and she's sitting around on the porch bantering with the very opinionated Dak Shepard and then he's like you know we should start a podcast and and I think it just does a great job showing what this path to impact looks like for the impact players there's like a principle behind this is that they don't necessarily follow their passion and lead with their passion they're not trying to get others to like accommodate them as much as they're finding ways to make themselves valuable in the context that they're in. And because they make themselves valuable, people want more of them and their contribution. Like, oh, you can babysit. Great. You can manage my schedule. Okay. You can do this. And they just keep getting handed bigger and bigger opportunities and they earn a bigger voice in the world. Like, you know, she has an enormous voice in the world, but it's because she took a path of service and contribution rather than of like self-promotion. You know, I, I saw an interview with her recently. Her and Dax were on like Colbert or Jimmy Kimmel or something, you know, and there's all these stories about like during the pandemic, she like, I think I'll, I'll back it for one second. I think some of the things that I'm most attracted to from the book is like all the different things as you describe impact players to me, and, and you'll have to weigh in on this if you feel differently, they feel a lot like high, high, high levels of personal responsibility, and then a like considerateness of what's helpful to others, like a combination. Would you, would you characterize it differently or how would you correct that? Or what do you think? No, I I think that's exactly right. Is they, and it's this like high levels of personal responsibility, but not personal obsession. Yes. Not self-focus, right? But but like, go ahead. Yeah. It's like, they've got the self part, right? They're self-directed, they're self-managing, they are, you know, take personal responsibility for things, but they're able to point themselves at what is valuable to the people around them. Because you, you can't, like your biggest impact isn't necessarily pursuing the thing that you care about, like, which might be kind of a, a population of 12. Like, <laughs> I care about this... Like Mike Mon, who's at Qualtrics and is now, you know, a part of the the management process of the Utah Jazz, like he comes out of Harvard's Kennedy School with like a set of things he really cares about, which is like development and sub-Saharan Africa. And he's like 
wants to do something with this, goes to work for this software company, Qualtrics, and he sees that actually the founder and owners, you know, lost, you know, has dealt with the, the ramifications of cancer in his family. It's very important to him. And Mike has to make a decision. Do I kind of try to pursue things that are passionate to me and I can make a little dent in the world? Or do I actually kind of join this larger fight and make a really big difference in the world? And and he does. And we won't go and take the time for all the amazing that things five that for we're the doing. What is it that? is five for the fight. Yeah. Okay. And it's, you know, so he had this idea of, well, if we're going to, if Qualtrics is going to sponsor a patch for the Utah Jazz, like maybe instead of sponsoring it under the Qualtrics logo, like, why don't we take this issue that we care about? You know, they had been doing things for cancer research and making some donations from the company's profits. They're like, let's go bigger with this. And he had to convince Ryan Smith to go big. And he's like, Ryan, are you really want to be all in on your work to help fight cancer? And Ryan's like, yeah, but like we could sponsor a patch that said Qualtrics on it. Like that'd be good for the company too. And and Mike is like, Ryan, are you all in on this? Because I'm prepared to be all in. And I love this. I have a no both of them. It's like, and and they do. And, you know, they have this campaign, five for the fight, you know, donate $5, you know, identify five people. And they, they're like, I don't, I can't remember the numbers if it's like a 10 X, but their ability to contribute to fighting cancer went up like orders of magnitude went up. And I just happened to have run into Mike about a week and a half ago. And he's like, it's a no brainer. Do I make a a little dent in the world doing the thing I care about? Or do I join something where I can make a huge impact? Well, I, I love this idea of the like, you know, before the show, we were talking about some favorite books and I brought up Bonds That Make Us Free, Terry Warner, right? And like, to me, there's some elements of that, of the like, like being really dialed into what I think I should do for others, maybe over some of my more self-focused desires of like, what do I, when I'm deep down honest with myself, what do I actually think I should do here? So like back to Monica, she moved in with Kristen and Dax during the pandemic, so they could keep the podcast going. And like, she lasted for like a really long time with all the chaos of kids and parents. And she obviously didn't need to endure that, but decided like, this is what the project needs, you know? Yeah. And obviously there's some backstory there, but like, it was, it was both funny and interesting to see like that level of commitment. That reputation is going to serve her very well for the decades to come. Those early sacrifices, things like that, to me, at least. And, you know, it also, I think, conveys that it's not just about serving and putting yourself second. It's the opportunities it creates. And I I don't I want to make sure I have my facts on this right, but I'm pretty sure she bought a house. They all bought a house for her on the same street. Now, I I assume this is not a shabby place to own some real estate. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what street this is, but you would think not. And it's so it's like now she has this home that maybe she couldn't have been able to acquire had she gone down this more like, let me do me. Let me kind of put me number one. Let me take care of myself. Let me get other people supporting me rather than being of support to others. You know, it's it's funny. So I have like, in addition to like the billionaires and pro athletes that we get on the show, I have a bunch of like special ops guys and intelligence officers, right? Mm. And it's surprising how many folks like FBI counterintelligence officers, CIA, you know, guys from the classified units of special ops love the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. 
which I feel like hmm. a lot of educated folks look down their nose on. It's like, well, it has been a bestseller for a hundred years. <laughs> you know, there's, there's some things there, right? And like, even though there can be some cheesy aspects to it and stuff like this, some of the things that you just brought up, like I think about the Dale Carnegie quote of like, where he says, the only way to get what you want in life is to help other people get what they want first. And mm. like that willingness to like really genuinely be there and be that clutch player and like go hard. And it's like you said, it's not like a instead of me, it's like an order of events or it's like a, I don't know. You, you, do you have any thoughts about that? Well, it's, it's about the, here's the way I like to think of it. It's, it was a story a professor of mine um, told me and he had spent, and so th this is a Jay Bonner Ritchie, amazing organizational philosopher, sort of a philosopher king out, out in this world, a big thinker. He had spent the summer traveling around the United States, going from major league ballpark to, to ballpark, watching all these games with his young son. And a friend of his said, like, Bonner, I didn't know that you liked baseball that much. And he said, well, I don't. And I was like, yeah, I would not peg Bonner for like a baseball fanatic. He's like, I don't, but I love my son that much. And it has always stuck with me. And, and it's this notion of like, this thing is not important to me, but it's important to someone I care about, someone I work with, someone who I work for. And it's like, I'm going to make it important to me. And I think it puts us on this path of impact and it creates this cycle, which is the more that we can do that, then the more opportunity we get. So like this was my experience early in Oracle where I'm like looking for an opportunity to work on the thing I want to do. I want to work on management training. I want to build like the company's first like real management curriculum and management program. And I'm like gunning for this and angling for it in some ways. I'm in this interview and I'm like, yeah, have you guys noticed that managers are like wreaking havoc on their team? And like, we can do this. Like, and I would love to do it. And my, the VP that I was interviewing with, he's like, yeah, that's great, Liz. Like, you're great, but that's not the problem we have. Like, your boss has got to figure out how to get 2,000 new college graduates up to speed on Oracle technology. And they needed someone to teach programming, like, to a bunch of nerds. Like, who, and I'm like, that's not me. Not really qualified for that. This is one of the jobs that I was definitely not qualified for. I'm like, that's not what I want to do. But I decided, you know what? Actually, if that's important to the company and it's important to my boss, I'm going to work there and create value. And it wasn't like by doing this that you end up constantly like, okay, I'll just do what other people care about. Like, forget about little old me. It's about you. Like, that's like that's bound to, there's probably very few people who can pull that off for their whole life and not end up like bitter. Bitter. I, I would not be one of these people who could do that forever. Uh, but everyone I know who kind of takes that as a life strategy ends up in some ways a little bit unsettled. It's it's that we add value. And then what do you do like when, when someone has taken something that's important to the organization and they've put it top priority for them? These are the people we want to entrust with greater responsibilities. These are the people we trust to do the right thing who will not angle for something, who will look at the data and make a decision that benefits the whole. And so these are people who build influence and and are trusted with the high stakes things and they're entrusted with bigger responsibilities. And I saw this myself, like when I got over my little diva moment and said, okay, let me serve where I am needed. 
and channel my passion and my energy and take whatever things I thought I was good at and figure out how to put them to work here. Like then, okay, Liz, we want you to manage the whole group. And then we want you to do this and we want you to do that. And then, you know, pretty soon I've built a lot of influence in the company. And it's, you know, it's not about, you, you build a big voice and you build in some ways power, but not for the sake of building power, but it gives you a chance to make a bigger impact. You know, I have really seen this in my life. So one of, one of my people I'm a huge fan of, we made her a partner in our investment fund last year. I started working with her like 18 years ago in a mm. cell phone shop in Southern California. Okay. Mm. But her name's Lindsay Hadley. She's got this consulting firm called Hadley Impact. And her clients are like Hugh Jackman's wife and Kevin Bacon and, you know, this billionaire in Chicago and this, anyways, the, the UN, like fancy clients, right? Mm-hmm. She completely got, and so I get to go to like all these events of hers. I've, you know, follow her to like Australia and the Vatican and all this cool stuff she's run, right? She completely got that by volunteering, not asking for credit, using up some of her social capital for people in a non-transactional way. And like one element of that is she got proximity, like super, super well-known celebrities, you know, dirty secret. They don't fund their own charities. Many of them feel like lending my name to the issue is my donation. And they, they want other people's money to pay for the work. And many of them have no idea how to get the other people's money because they're not, it's not like an exchange, like everything they've done for their career, right? And like her willingness to go pick the right people and help in a non-transactional way and just do what needs to get done. I, because I've followed her career so closely, being friends with her for, since 2002, I guess. It's absurd to me how many times something amazing happens because of the proximity and the reputation she built of this like non-transactional helper. She, I'm going to embarrass her a little bit for a minute. She spent so much of her own money getting people out of Afghanistan this summer and like calling in all these favors for no client, like just because she thought it was the right thing to do. And on a call with her the week before last, I found out about this huge opportunity she got from someone she bumped into just trying to do what she thinks is right, not getting paid. And uh, it's like, it's made me such a convert of like, well, I got to Lindsay Hadley this. I've got to show up and help and not think what's in it for me and just have faith that you're going to, you're going to harvest what you plant and just do what you actually think. Oh, I've been trying, I've been like wanting to bust out into some Hamilton lyrics about proximity to power, you know, but it, it is true. And I probably miss this in when you ask like, what did I come out of Oracle with? And one of them was proximity to senior executives because I got thrown into the job like go build a corporate university, run the corporate university. It's something all the executive team members care about. So like I kind of got, I was like the little kid in that world and they were, I don't know, 10, 20 years older than me. Like and often I'm the only woman in a room full of male executives. And, you know, it's not like the, the part of that that I use in my work is certainly not like proximity to power in the valley, it's I got a chance to really understand how senior leaders think and work and how like a founder CEO thinks and what that life is like. And I think it gave me a lot of empathy upward. And in the book, I call this upward empathy. It's like looking at the senior leaders and saying like, what is your world like? What's hard for you? How, what are you trying to get done that is frustrating? Or in some ways, what I gained was looking at senior executives and being like, human, they're human too. Like, they're no big deal. Like, they're struggling with the same kinds of things. So I don't 
like I don't intimidate very easily. Like it takes, I don't, I don't know who, that's a fun question. Like who I would find intimidating, but I'm like, not intimidating. I'm because I just see them as people trying to get a job done. And when we can get, see things through other people's perspective and see like, what are they trying to do? How can I help them accomplish what they're trying to do is it allows you to know like, what's the most important thing? You know, it's like kind of like high, high level. It's like service mentality, but it's serving where you can also be of great influence. I love this idea of like, let's Lindsay Hadley it. That's fun. <laughs> yeah. I got to get you introduced to her. She's so great. But I'm going back to the Monica Padman story of like, look at this. She's, she's getting made to babysit. She doesn't have to volunteer to do Kristen's schedule. She doesn't have to volunteer to read the skips. In fact, let's say she was probably doing some, she's probably doing some of that outside of paid hours. You know, you know what I mean? Like if she, like if she was in it for the short, for the short term mindset, like taking, taking time away to do the scripts, taking the time away and then saying yes to full time, you know, like all these things don't make sense in the short term, but yet having faith in the long term of like, you know, in the words of your book, like committing to be an impact player, like it's going to be more fulfilling for you as a human. How does that not bear fruit for your future? Like, oh, well, okay. So that's, it's complicated. Let's talk about that. First of all, I, I want to confess something I already told, I, I said, I'm 57 years old. I cannot believe it has taken me like more than 50 years on this planet to figure out this thing. But, you know, it's just in the last couple of years, like I'm seeing the consequence of having like raised children a certain way and done things a certain way like this. It came into clarity and I'm kind of embarrassed to say this because it's probably so obvious to everyone else. But whenever I've been struggling for like, what is the right thing to do? How do I handle this situation? You know, maybe it's a tense conversation. Maybe it's a important decision. It's a career decision. Maybe there's been something wrong go on. I've realized that the right answer is always found when I say, you know what, in the long haul, what will be the right thing to have done here? And so like basically just by taking the long perspective, it always puts into focus, like, what should I do right now? Like, should I serve quietly or should I claim credit? Okay, so in some ways, in the long run, serve quietly and the right things will come to you. What if I'm, what if I'm in a, what if I'm someone that maybe is easy to take advantage of inside an organization? What if I'm someone who is not in the dominant gender in that organization? What if I'm like a woman in a male dominated industry where my ideas are easily stolen by other people? You know, like someone, you say something and then, you know, uh, a man says it and it's like taken. What if I come from like an underrepresented group or like historically disadvantaged group? Like in the long run, it might not be wise to just serve quietly and hope good things will come to people who do good things. Like in the long run, maybe what I need to do is like, actually, I contributed to that and here's how I contributed. Or maybe I need to help someone see evidence of my contribution like and because like there are a lot of people who are doing the right thing but aren't well seen and aren't being heard and the impact players maybe in those organizations are people who sort of look like sound like the most powerful influential people in those organizations so I thought a lot about what I came to call the missing impact player because there are some people who could easily become like sort of the workhorse while somebody else is out there like 
I don't know, is the show horse. Yeah, you know, it's funny. So most of my time these days is is working on our project of building like a big portfolio of adventure cabins to put on Airbnb that our investment fund is doing, right? But I still do some of my work, like some CEO strategy advisor. I, I think I'll probably do that for the rest of my life. Like I carve off a mm-hmm. few hours for that still. And I think about that a lot in terms of like the mental image for me, and I, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, is like, I think about it like a balance beam. It is so easy to fall off both sides of being self-promotional versus letting yourself be a doormat. Like the line in between, and it changes moment by moment. It changes meeting to meeting. It changes year to year. It changes which group you're in, you know? And like the formulas aren't that helpful where like the principles of like, what do I actually think is right when I'm deep down honest with myself? Or like Mm. when I think about that, like I need to be fair to everyone in this room and I'm one of the people in this room, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? So that includes me too of like, you know, what if so-and-so had stolen her idea instead of stolen my idea? Would it be okay to let that go past? Well, why is it okay to let it go past if it's me? Like, this is like the opposite situation, which most people won't have any sympathy for. But one of my like snowboarder skater buddies growing up, big football player, star basketball player, is a dental hygienist. Okay. He's like, yeah, I know I've got a girl job. He's like six foot. Well, and with big like guy, okay? massive hands, like yeah. sausage fingers, right? Yeah, right? But he was an artist growing up. So I think that had to help him. But like he definitely gets sidelined because almost all of his coworkers are moms. This is a part-time thing. The scheduling, everything is around. Everything is around. It's everything not built is built for him. It's not built for him. Right. And he's the guy that's doing like, he's the guy who's doing the like 70 hour weeks, 60 hour weeks. And like, he doesn't fit the mold. And he is, he's the guy who like, I'm going to tell him <laughs> just cause oh, but he's the guy who's more likely to bottle things up instead of say something. Okay. Uh-huh. And you know, I know for a fact, he's a little bitter sometimes about the way that he gets disregarded because he doesn't fit. Yeah. And, and it's a great example of people who, whose work isn't seen or people who can be taken advantage of who are carrying this weight. And and I think it's something that we need to be sensitive for the, the person in the room that we can amplify and we can help like be an ally for, and then also how it works for ourselves. And I love your metaphor of a balance beam because that, that is kind of how it's how I've tried to manage it for myself and how I've seen other people manage it, which is I'm going to stay in balance. So let's, let's say self-promotion versus doormat. Like I'm not going to go down the self-promotion path. I'm not going to go down like, Oh, look at me. Look what I did. Hey, report brought to you by Liz Wiseman. You know, like that was not the path I went down in Oracle. It was like, kind of like, you know what, do your job, make a contribution. So I'm not going to fall off the balance beam on the left side doing stuff for, but I'm also not going to let somebody push me off on the right side. So, you know, there were times early in my career where I could see I had done some work and somebody else was going to kind of step in and swoop credit for that. And one of them was one of my first bosses. And I had to like sit down and go, no, you know, and it was something that was very stupid about we built this management program and we were going to like do the first run of this. And we were going to give people these binders and they could put the materials in the binders. And I had, she, we were going to do the first program and she wanted to present the binder. And she's like, oh, I the binder is neat. I want to be the one to present it. And I was like, oh, I see what's happening here. And I had to have this little conversation with her like, okay, let's just go through the facts on this. Like, whose idea was it to do the program? Mine or yours? And she's like, yours. I'm like, okay, who did the work? Me or you? You. I'm like, okay, who should present the binder? And she's like, 
me. It's you, right? And I'm like, yeah, I should probably be the one to present the binder. And it was done like not as a, an attack. It was done funny and light. And, and she said, you're right, Liz, you should be the one to present the binder. Now, did I really care about the binder? No, but I'm like, I'm not going to let somebody just claim credit for work that I've rightly done. And I had that same conversation with the president of Oracle one time where we'd been building this program together and he's like, kick it off. And he's like, yeah, HR had nothing. So like we built this ourselves. And I'm like, so at the first break, I pull him aside. I'm like, Ray, are you not happy with my team and I have done with you? Because I'm in HR. And he's like, no. And I'm like, is there anything that you've been disappointed with? No. And like, Ray is like, have I done the things that like, yes. And I'm like, then why did you say that we, we didn't? Do? And he goes, I didn't mean you. I meant the other people. Like, no, like you're. And I'm like, well, yeah, but that's what it sounded like to other people. And he's like, I'm so sorry. And this was someone I worked with incredibly well. Probably um, my biggest partner, supporter, fan. I'm a fan of his in my entire career. But I kind of called them out like, you can't throw me under the bus. So it's like when I see that teetering happening to the right, I'm going to go in and say, no, no, we're not going there. I'm not going to let that happen. Okay, I love these two stories because both of those stories could happen from a place of exaggerated victimhood. Or from a place of deep honesty, right? And, you know, it makes me think of that cliche of like, we permit what we promote. Like, mm. we teach people how to treat us, but by, by what we are willing to accept, right? They'll keep doing more of what we're willing to accept. And, but my favorite part of your story is when you said, I didn't do it as an accusation. I made it light. Mm. I made it funny. Like, there's obviously a massive power in balance between you and the president. And your ability to like, non-accusatorily help him recognize what it looks like from your standpoint without shoving down your throat. You did that wrong. How dare you? Any of those kind of things. Doesn't it make it, doesn't it make it so easy for him to, instead of being worried about defending himself, actually become empathetic and see it through your eyes and then make a new choice at, after that point? Well, absolutely. Cause both of these, I am speaking to power in these situations. And here's like something I've learned along the way, because I had this proximity to power really early in my career, is that newsflash, they're people too. And, and they actually need safety. Like, so if you go in guns blazing and accuse someone like they're not going to have, they're not going to feel the safety to say, wow, like my bad, you present the binder or like, Liz, I'm sorry. Like, no, you've done an amazing job. And like, I now need to tell people about that. And so it's like, how do I make it safe for them to see what's going on? And you wouldn't think that someone more junior would have to make it safe for someone more senior, but, but you do. And, and I think it allows you to just ensure the right things are, are done. Now, I've got one more story to add to this is, oh, fast forward, you know, I'm in a pretty senior position in the organization and I come out of a management committee meeting and Shari was one of the other executives, like she had been in this meeting too. And she comes out and she's shaking her head and she's like, Liz, I think I just finally figured out why nobody in this company. And I think she was pretending to talk about the executive team. She's like, why nobody gives you. And I'm like, oh, well, okay. Yeah. I is that true? I'm like, yeah, I guess it is a little bit true. And and I'm like expecting Shari to say, because you're such a good person <laughs> or something like, because you're so nice, like nobody would do that. And Shari goes, yeah, 
No, she goes, I watch these meetings and she says, nobody gives you a hard time. And, and she says, I realize it's because they note back to them. Okay. It's the balance beam, which is, oh, I'm not picking fights. I'm not going to like trash talk anyone. I'm not playing those kind of games, but I'm not going to let you play those games on me. Like if you pull a power move, I, I am going to meet you back with the same energy and I am not afraid of you. Like if you like say, oh, Liz, you know, well, we couldn't get our people trained because your training programs weren't available. I just might say, and I've done these kinds of things, which is like, oh, Ron, do you want me to pull out the bug reports for your products? Because I'll do that. I got them here in my case. And they'll be like, just kidding. Not really. So it's like, no, I am not going to be someone's punching bag. And I'm also not let someone steal credit. Like, and it's this, I'm not going to push myself off the left side of like picking fights and doing this thing, tough talk but I'm not going to be a victim either. Like I will, I will defend myself if you throw a punch at me. I love it. Everybody should be going to impactplayersbook.com, getting your own copy of Impact Players. Liz, this has been great. I've got one final question. I, I'm so sad that I have another call at the top of the hour because I want to keep going. But, <laughs> but um, I, first of all, to your last story, it's hard for me to get through an episode without bringing up Warren Buffett. So you've given me my chance. When okay. Solomon Brothers went down, he said, we will willingly pay for any wrongdoing we've done, but we will not be anybody's patsy. It was very interesting because they were in tons of trouble. And he just said like, hey, listen, we'll own everything that's ours, but we won't be owning things that weren't ours. It was We're going to stay on the balance beam. We're right? going to stay in balance. I love your uh, metaphor. Okay. In my last minute here, maybe we need just need to have you back on the show so we can talk about this. So many of our listeners, so many of the entrepreneurs and investment fund managers who listen to the show want to write a book, want to be an author, or have written a book, but it didn't really get the success they were looking for. I'm sure you have a million points of wisdom, but when you think about being an author and getting the word out, having more people find out about it, what's what's one tip that maybe people wouldn't have thought, or, or what's been one of the more powerful principles for you to, to get the word out there about what you've made? That is not a one-minute conversation, okay. Jess. It's, is it the book, does it invite a public conversation? Is it something that you can just like, oh, great, I got something out of it and set it down? Or does it necessitate a larger conversation? I love your answer. My my good friend who I met on the show and we've become good friends since, Shane Snow, best-selling author of Smart Cuts and built a $100 million tech company. He's a great guy. He, he got like 450,000 followers on LinkedIn. And that's his number one thing. Does your post invite a conversation or not? And so it's so funny to hear you say that in a, I mean, it's so interesting to hear you say it in a different realm, but, but so powerful. Like it's simple, but I, I completely see where you go with it. Oh, we could talk so much more about that, but I know that you have a top of the hour and it is the top of the hour. This has been so fun. You're totally welcome back on the show. Write another book. Let's have you back on. <laughs> that's, that's torture. <laughs> that's a, that's an invitation with a, a curse attached. <laughs> well, it was uh, a great talking to you. Everybody, please tune in to uh, Liz's websites. Go go to Impact Book, impactplayersbook.com. Go check out her, her company, thewisemangroup.com. Liz, thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, nice talking to you. Okay, bye everyone.